Hi, thanks for joining us. We're going to the book of Numbers this morning. Numbers chapter 10 is where we're going to start. We're in a study uh, that we started last time on the book of Numbers and especially the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel and looking at uh, who they are and what lessons we can learn in life from them. So we're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week and try and finish up our overview of the book of Numbers uh, this morning. You know, you can find yourself in a wilderness for a number of reasons. It could be because of your personal choices and that God uses the wilderness to bring you back to him and to correct and to chasten. Sometimes we can find ourselves in the wilderness because of other people's choices. And no matter whether we find ourselves because of other people's decisions or because of ours, we have to accept that ultimately God's plan will be accomplished, that God is sovereign and that uh, he will take care of us and he's still with us. This happened a a number of years ago. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the story, but uh, with my father. But for those of you who aren't, let me let me share a little bit of the background. My dad, he uh, has always been a construction worker, fabulous worker, just loved to do construction work and to work with his hands. And he was a very faithful worker through all my childhood. He would get up early in the morning, head out, and he would often drive an hour, hour and a half into the city of Chicago in order to uh, to work on those construction sites. Well, he uh, had had opportunities. He worked on uh, Comiskey Park, which now is U.S. Cellular Field, which is now Guaranteed Rate Field. It's had like 14 different names. I don't know what it is. So where the Chicago White Sox play. He was the head foreman on that. He worked at Buckingham Fountain, the, the restoration project at Buckingham Fountain. When you look in Chicago, you see this beautiful, ornate fountain. He was one, who, one of the men who headed up the restoration of that fountain. He was very uh, well-known in the construction circles in Chicago, but worked very faithfully in that. Well, a number of years ago, about, about a decade ago or so, there was a situation where he was working, and what he was doing was he was, uh, he was holding what's called a sauna tube. A sauna tube is just a, a tube where you would pour cement in, and it would create a footer for a sign. And he was holding it, but it was pretty heavy, pretty bulky, and there were a number of things happening. There was also a crane that was helping to hold it, and he was steadying it. Well, that day, the crane operator, who uh, is responsible to check all the different items of the crane, he uh, was found out later that he was intoxicated while he was operating the crane. And it caused a series of events and things that happened that ended up injuring my dad. There's an item called the headache ball. That's uh, the little, the big ball on the top of the crane with the little hook. That headache ball uh, was not attached correctly and it snapped loose, came loose from the cable and came plummeting down and ended up smashing my dad's, my dad's right hand and he's right-handed, smashing his hand and breaking fingers, arms, part of the arm, damaging the shoulder. His whole right entire side was just completely damaged from this, this accident. And that sent dad into, into a wilderness. It was a hard time, hard time for our family, hard time for dad, because now someone who has always been out there providing and doing the work and providing for his family is now not able to do that. And there were a lot of things that I remember dad having to work through in order to come to, you know, in, in his place, a, a better spot than where he found himself with this situation. And as I look through life, yes, God used that situation in a number, of, a number of ways. But when we find ourselves in the wilderness, how do we, how do we come out of it? Where do we go? What do we do? And as we look at the book of Numbers, I want you to remember, there are people in the book of Numbers who are there because of their choice. They made the decision to rebel and not trust God 
And then there is a whole generation of people who are banished to the wilderness because of the choices of others. And we often think, well, the book of Numbers is about that, the, that group that they're going to wander for 40 years and they're going to die in the wilderness. And that's, that's what the book of Numbers is about. But when you look at the proportion of the book of Numbers, when you look at the amount of text that is given, there is much more text given to the second generation of, of believers or uh, Israelites there than there, are, than there is to the smaller group to that first generation that's going to die off. And so the book of Numbers really does start to gravitate toward, we're still going to the land. Yes, there is this hiccup. Yes, there is this wilderness. There is this sin problem we have to deal with. But God is faithful through the book. And as we look through the book, let's, let's do a little review. That hurt. <clears throat> I got to watch that pulpit there. I'll do that next time. Uh, <laughs> that really did hurt. <laughs> Okay, so the book of Numbers. Uh, remember that it's broken geographically as we talked last time. The first 10 chapters, Israel is at Mount Sinai. Then they're going to move to a place called Kadesh Barnea. That's the, uh, the oasis in the desert right before on the south of the promised land where they're going to plan to go in. And then they're going to find themselves in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan, ready to cross in by the end of the book. When they're at Mount Sinai, a lot of the law is given. Moses is given direction, given information from God. And God, Moses communicates that to God, uh, from God to the people. And so all of that starts to happen in chapter 10. And we remember from last time that the personnel, the, what, did, what did God promise? He promised them and provided them the personnel they needed. He provided them with Moses, the leader. He provided them with priests, with Aaron. He provided them with the Levites, with the tabernacle, all those things that he provided their personnel that they needed. He provided the planning they needed. We talked about the marching orders and how to set up camp and taking the military census and being ready to go on the march, to go into battle, because in their mind, that's where they're headed. They're headed to take over in conquest the promised land. Then you find that they have the purity that they needed. Moses takes time as they go through, and God takes time to say, hey, this is not just a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. You need to prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves to come before me, and prepare yourselves as you enter into the land. And then it talked about in the, in the chapters about God's presence that God was with them. The Shekinah glory is going to come down and rest upon the tabernacle. And then as Moses talks about in chapter 10, that wherever that wherever the cloud goes, that's where we're going to go. Where the pillar of fire heads, we're going to follow. Where it rests, that's where we're going to set up camp. And it, whether it was a day, a week, a month, however long, we were going to follow what God had planned for us because that was the presence of God. And so they, so God had prepared the people to enter into the promised land in a great way. Well, now we get to the middle of chapter 10 and down to verse 11. As you get to verse 11, you're going to see that it is time for the march to begin. It says, It came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up off of the tabernacle of the testimony, and now it's going to move. And are they going to follow? They follow. We know they're going to follow. And so... As they're going to follow, look at Moses' comments at the end of the, end of the chapter. Verse number 35. It says, And it came to pass, 
when the ark stepped forward, that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. So what was Moses looking generally and saying? He's saying, God, lead us. And when you lead, take care of us, provide for us, protect us. Go before us and scatter the enemies because we're going to follow you because this is where you're taking us. And then he says, hey, but, but stay close. Come back, settle in with us, be near to us. And isn't that, isn't that what we want in our lives? Moses' prayer is so, so similar to what many of us pray. God, lead us. But God, don't forsake us. Stay close to me. Be, be near me. And so the, the march begins in chapter 10. But then as soon as you turn the page, if it's there for you, a page turn, or if it's right to the next chapter, the march begins, but so does the murmuring. Right away, verse, 11, verse 1 of chapter 11. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. So they're on the march. There only can be a few days on the march. And yet, what do they do? They're going to murmur. They're going to complain. And notice the impact that this has on the leadership. In fact, in verse 4, it even talks about that the mixed multitude, and we'll get into that more later on in our studies. But they were, they were longing, they were lusting, they were desiring after. What were they desiring after? They wanted meat. I mean, this is the weirdest complaint you're going to get. I really long for my fish, onions, garlics, and garlic, and cucumbers. Maybe that's your favorite thing and that's what you long for, but that's probably not on my, my first priority list when I'm looking and saying, I am hungry. Ooh, give me some leeks and garlic and onions and cucumbers and, uh, you know, some fish. But they were even just saying, we just want something other than manna. They weren't content with what God had provided them. They started to complain. But look at how it takes a toll on Moses. Very, very interesting what he says. He says, Verse 14, I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray, pray thee, out of, the, out of hand, and if I have found no favor in your sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Moses, Moses looks and says, I can't do this alone. If this is what you have for me, God, I can't handle the murmuring. I can't handle the, the pressures. And he says, if it's just me and me alone, and I'm going to have to continually bear and deal with this, God, I can't handle it. Just kill me. I think that's a really important lesson for us to be reminded of when we think about our leadership, even in our church, even as we go through some of these times, maybe our boss at work, Maybe our teacher, those who are in authority over us, our constant bickering and complaining, our constant chiding, the, the tossing out of ideas that say, well, I don't think we should have done this. What, don't you think we should have done? You know, and I disagree with And that constant, I'm not saying we don't, we don't question or something is wrong or we, we uh, look forward to correcting something that, that truly is wrong. But just the murmuring, just the gossip, the slander. Look at the toll that it took on Moses. How does my complaining, how does my murmuring, how does that affect my pastor, our pastor? How does it affect our deacons? How does it affect my boss? when everybody's around the water cooler, so to speak, and murmuring and complaining and talking. 
about them and about what they chose to do for the company. The heavy toll, and you might look and say, well, that's the weight of leadership, and they just have to deal with it. Here's Moses, placed there by God, and yet he's looking and saying, it's, it's really hard. It is really difficult to handle, so Lord, help me. And yet, in spite of all of their complaining, what does God do? He shows grace to them. In verses 18 and following, he's going to say, all right, prepare yourselves. I'm going to give you flesh to eat. Not, not human flesh, but just the idea of meat. We know that he's going to provide quail, that they're going to have these birds that are going to be flying low and they're going to be able to take them out and, and have this meat to eat. And it's, it's interesting to me that as you, as you look in through the passage, and we won't take time to go deep into it, but through all the murmuring and the complaining and the challenging of authority and, and Moses being provided for in this chapter, even with the 70 men, and he trusts them and he follows them and he's not jealous of them, God still graciously provides for the complainers. And he does that. And yet those complainers, they get greedy. They go even further It says at the end, verse 32, it talks about that they stood up. Some of the people stayed up all night and kept gathering and gathering and gathering and gathering and gathering. And they they hoarded it. And it says that God was so displeased with them that his wrath came upon them. And while they were even still chewing on the meat, he struck them with a very great plague. Remember, God has provided for these people day in and day out with manna. He has provided them food over and over and over again. And these people are looking, oh, he's never going to do this again, so I'm just going to hoard it. And they got greedy, and there was that, that plague that happened. So God, God ended up punishing even the greedy in the midst of his grace. And you're going to see that play throughout the book of Numbers. You're going to see God's mercy, God's grace, God's justice. And it's going to constantly interweave. And it's a beautiful picture of who God is throughout the book. And we'll take time as we go through to really dive in a little bit deeper. But as you go through, the complaining does not just stop with the people. Look at, look at where the complaining goes. When you get to chapter 12, the, it says, And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. The complaining is going to continue. And it's going to be Moses and Aaron, uh, Miriam and Aaron, excuse me, who are going to challenge the leadership of Moses. They're, they're in leadership. These are, you know, Miriam, a prophetess, been very much used by God to minister to the people. You have Aaron, who's the, the priest, the high priest, and yet they're going to complain. And this is not, we'll, we'll look at deeper in, in the future. This is not about whether or not he, because he married an Ethiopian woman or not. That's the occasion that they use to complain. And so they're going to challenge it because look at verse 2. It says, And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? We know the answer is no, because he spoke to Aaron. He spoke through Miriam. It has happened. But they're using that. And hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. What are they doing? They're challenging Moses' authority. Why is everybody just like, what about us? We have good ideas. We have the, the ability to lead and direct people. Why is everybody just going to him? And there's this challenge even against Moses' leadership. And it's interesting that after that, I mean, because the, the response that is placed there, that Moses was the meekest of all the people, probably because at that moment he probably really wanted to go after his brother and sister and lay into them. And yet his response is gracious. 
And verse 7, it's validated again. Moses' leadership. My servant Moses, as God speaks, is not so. Who is faithful in all my house? With him will I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. There is a personal relationship that God has with Moses, and he is directly giving him the, the information, the knowledge, the speaking of the law. And so you have this, and, and what happens in the passage by the end, you have Miriam who is facing leprosy. And she's going to be put out of the camp for seven days, and their camp's not going to move until Miriam is, is healed of the leprosy and she comes back in to the camp. But it reminds us that consequences are even, even there for righteous people. You might say, well, I'm righteous, I'm good, everything's going great, and I'm, I'm immune to this, I'll, I'll be okay, I can get away with a little bit of murmuring and complaining, and it's really not going to impact anything, because I'm a righteous individual, I'm a leader, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, I've been a deacon, I'm on the missions committee, I teach Sunday school, I've been in the choir, and I do all these things, and so I, I have a right now, I have a platform to grumble and complain. And yet, Miriam and Aaron did not have that. And God took, God took exception because they were challenging the leadership, which ultimately meant they were challenging God's provisions, God's provision of a personnel in the leadership of Moses. So there's this constant uh, challenging of what God has provided, how God has prepared them, and they don't like it. And so people complain, even Miriam and Aaron. And so you get to chapter 13 in the book. And as we get to chapter 13, we get to that spot where it is the kid's song. Twelve men went to spy and came and ten were bad and two were good. And, and we hear all that. We have that little song that we sing with the kids. But this, 13 and 14, are the, the, the reversal in the book. It's the linchpin. It's, it's the key chapter chapters to, to understand here. And as you look at chapters 13 and 14, chapter 13, the first part is going to all lay out who the spies were. But when you get to them going out of the land, coming back into the land, the spies come back, look at their response. You can, you can picture it as they're coming back in, they're carrying the grapes, they're carrying the pomegranates, they're carrying the figs and the dates and the, the, all, the, all the spoils of the land, what it offers. And, and look, at, look at what they have in chapter 13, verse 27. It says, and they told him, and they said, we came unto the land whither you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. You can just, if they would just stop there, if they would say, this is what God has said, we're going into that land, this is what it's like. They told the truth, and they just said, here it is. And if they would have just stopped there and said, let's go, wow, we would have a completely different book of numbers. But you find that they don't. What do they do? They start in verse 28 before we get to 14 verse 1. Verse 28 says, Nevertheless, the people, they're strong. Their cities are walled. The, the, the Anakim, the giants are there. There's, there's big people, more like these little grasshoppers. And they start to, yes, they gave some truth, but they started to add doubt. They started to distill uh, fear in the people. And what does it do? Look to 14, chapter 14, verse 1. All the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Look at the change in emotion. We're going to the land. Here they come. Now we're weeping and wailing. Why did that happen? It was because of these men, the, the, the report of these men. 
as they came back and they, they, they dealt with, they couldn't deal with Moses directly. They couldn't look and just say, Moses, we shouldn't do this. This is, this is crazy. They, to walk back and just do that. And, and we don't want to find ourselves in this position where you might not feel like you want to just take the boss on directly or you want to change something. And so you're going to uh, just deal with it directly. You're going to be subversive about it. You're going to be underhanded and sneaky and go around the ways. And that's, that's sort of what these men do by just starting to throw out ideas. They, they start to raise questions. You know, can we really do this? I don't know. But, but they share a little bit of good, don't they? they? They say, hey, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? What about that? What about this? Rather than just looking and saying, this is what God has said. This is what we're going to do. And do we do this with, with other, other coworkers, other leaders? Maybe a coworker who we would really like their job, or we would really like them to maybe not look as good, so I look better for a promotion. And so we start raising questions about their work. We start casting doubt on what they do. And these leaders that should have instilled confidence, what do they end up doing? They raise fear. These are the men that should have come back and said, all right, here we go. Just like Joshua and Caleb did. And we know they're rewarded because of it. Because they looked and said, God is with us. He has been leading us. He's the one who goes before us. And we're going to follow him. And yet these leaders should have been an example. And they weren't. What did they do? They raised the doubt. They raised contradictions. They contradict what God has said. Oh, we can't do this. But God has said, I'm giving you this land. You're going to go in. I'm going to give you places that you didn't build. I'm going to give you wells that you didn't dig. I'm going to give you vineyards that you didn't plant. And they're looking at all of these things. And then they're saying, yeah, we're not going to be able to have that. We can't do that. God's not going to give that to us. There's no way we can beat these people. There's no way we can face these odds. And the people follow after. They follow after the, the majority of those, those spies. And all of this happens. By the time you get to verse 4 of chapter 14, uh, let, me, let me throw this out there. I, I like this quote by Pastor Mark Dever down in uh, Washington, D.C. He said this, Whenever you lay a butt against the promise of God, it's not good. And that's what they do. You have the promise of God. I'm giving you this land. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. You're going in nevertheless, but let me tell you, it's not good. Let's take the promises of God and let's go forward with them and trust that God is good and God has our best interests at heart. By the time you get to 14 verse 4, you're going to see that he said the people are going to look and say, let us make a captain. What are they saying? Give us a different leader. We don't like the leader you gave to us, God. We're going to take our own leader. And what are we going to do? We're going to return to Egypt. We're going to go back to where you delivered us from because we don't like what you delivered us from. We don't like where you've sent us to. We don't like what you've provided for us and prepared for us. We're going back. They are rebelling against God. They are not trusting in God. By the time you get to chapter 10, after Joshua and Caleb say, no, trust in God. Chapter 10 says they're going to pick up the stones. They want to stone them. And so there's, there's this rebellion that is very open by the people directly to God. This is not just a challenge to Joshua and Caleb and Moses. This is a challenge against God. And they, they rebel against God. And so the punishment that we know about is going to occur. That those who are under the age of, uh, all those over the age of 40 are going to die. Uh, excuse me, 20 are going to die. And all they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years for the number of days it was sent to spy out the land. And there is going to be this punishment that is going to uh, occur 
to these people. In fact, to, to show that it's really going to happen, that God is not mixing words, look what he does to those spies, those ten spies. Verse 37 says, And the men which Moses sent into the, to search the land that returned, uh, even those that did bring up the evil report, what did they do? That day they died by the plague before the Lord. So there, it was almost a sign to say, this is going to happen. You are going to face the punishment, the wrath of God. His justness, his justice is going to be demonstrated in the wilderness. And yet, when you get to the end of this, and you look and say, okay, what is this, what is this show? The rebellion of the people is met by the punishment of God. We see that in, in 14 verse 11 and 12. But then the punishment of God, that should be capital G, sorry about that, is met by the intercession of Moses. Moses, again, you look, at, look at how many times, and we'll look at this later, how many times Moses intercedes for these people. The people who always want to replace him. The people who always grumble about him. The people who have problems with him. He intercedes on their behalf. And then the intercession of Moses, what does it bring about? It does bring about the forgiveness of God. God chooses that he's going to pardon He's not going to wipe out the entire uh, generation. You see in verse number 20, where it says, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. And Moses is going to to interact with the Lord. And God is then going to say, I'm not going to wipe everybody out, just those over the age of 20. Now, but remember, this whole generation, everybody under the age of 20 is now going to, for 40 years, have to wander in the wilderness. Now, life is still going to be, like life, it's just not going to be the promised land living. They're still going to have places to stay. They're still going to be semi-nomadic, moving from place to place. They're still going to have families. There's still going to be kids being born. There's still going to be some celebrations. But it's just not going to be fully what God wanted and intended for these people to have. And so for the next 40 years, some of these people are going to wander because of choices made by their parents, by others. And yet they still have to go through the wilderness and are going to to grow because of it. The people did not trust God. They didn't trust God. And how do we see that they didn't trust God? They didn't trust his provisions. They didn't trust his leaders. They didn't trust his directions. They, They chose not to trust the provisions, the plan, the personnel, all those things that that God had given to them. They chose not to trust. And yet Moses prays for them. God still provides for them. God's grace and mercy is still evidenced in his life. But the people didn't trust God. And it's important to remember that disobeying God is always a capital offense. You might get away with it for a while. It might be okay. But it is ultimately a capital offense against God. And I think it's ultimately important for us to remember this. The situation at Kadesh Barnea. It's not just in the wilderness that follows. It's not just a big time out. Oh, God's going to stick his people in the corner. They'll be okay. And then they're going to come out and everything will be hunky-dory. And, and God's just a God of grace and mercy and love. And he'll be okay with it. And, and we're going to be okay. No, this was a death sentence on an entire generation. They chose those 10 times. And we're going to see that it's still going to continue to rebel against God. And in the rebellion against God, God has said, enough is enough. We are going to deal with it. And so God in his justness says, there is going to be dealings for your sin. And yet, 
in his mercy, he provides pardon. He brings the next generation through. And and that's what you're going to start to see. It seems harsh. It seems very harsh. But in order to understand God's mercy, we have to understand God's justice. Because if we don't think that God is going to punish, and if we don't think that God is going to deal with sin, then we're just going to take advantage of his grace and his mercy. We have to look and say it's two sides. It, it, they, they go hand in hand. They, though they seem opposite, we appreciate God's mercy far more when we understand his justice. And this generation that's going to come out, they're going to understand God's justice. And they're going to understand God's grace and God's mercy. Well, what happens? What happens after rebellion? Is it, is it done? Are we just, okay, God's going to wipe out. And so for the next, you know, from chapter 15 on, we're obviously, what, what are we going to see? We're going to see God wipe out the nation. And he's done with them. Look how, look how the writer, as Moses writes numbers, look at how he transitions. There's going to be a situation that occurs at the end of 14 where people are going to try and go in against the promised land and take it despite of God. And then you get to chapter 15. And even after this horrific sin, there is great hope. Look at, look at verse 15. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of your habitations, which I give to you. In other words, when you go to the promised land, this is just after he said, you're done. I'm going to radically execute an entire generation for your, your radical rebellion. And then he's going to look and say, when you come into the land, because God is gracious, God is merciful. And so as we look at chapter 15 to 36, the rest of the book, it shows God and his people after the rebellion. Now, remember, it's going to show that God forgave the people. That's what we saw 14 verse 20, that it says, I'm going to pardon them. But it also shows that God is going to persevere with his people. God does not look and say, well, you did this, and so I want no relationship with you anymore. You're gone. See you later. He doesn't do that. He's going to strive with them. He's going to go along the journey with them. He's still going to provide for them. In fact, look at, look at what happens as, as, the, as it goes on. We need to remember that he's going to forgive. He's going to persevere with them. But that does not mean that they're going to be perfect. In fact, we know as we continue on, these people did not completely change. You get to chapter 20, and you're going to have Moses and even Aaron. Their leadership the godly leaders are going to fall into sin. They're going to be so frustrated with the people again, with their complaining, with their bickering, with their murmuring, with their uh, discontentment, that it drives Moses and Aaron to ultimate sin. And this is what drives Moses to not be able to enter into the promised land. You get to chapter 21, and you find that the people are completely impatient. It says that the the people, again, spoke against God in verse 5 of chapter 21. And what's going to happen? God's going to send the plague of the serpents, and they're going to come, and they're going to be striking. And Moses is going to put the serpent up on the hilltop. And if they look to him, and if they put trust in God, then they're going to be okay. If not, they're going to be decimated by this plague. So the people's impatience still present. You get to chapter 25, and the people are going to, in the situation with Balaam and Balak, 
And all of this happens. And by the end, what you find is the people starting to drift off into spiritual immorality and physical immorality. And there's going to be this whole sin situation. And there's going to be another plague that comes about in this. So the people after Kadesh Barnea are not perfect. Many learned. Some did not. And yet they're still saying, what a picture in our lives of sin and forgiveness. And that there is still, there's not a perfection that occurs after. And yet God forgives, God pardons, God is merciful, God is just in dealing with our sins. All of those things keep playing in, in our lives. So as we forgive and we ask God forgiveness of sin, we have to understand, even as I forgive people, I have to understand they're still sinners. There's still sinners who are struggling and they may fail again. But my responsibility is to forgive and to ask for forgiveness and to go through that whole process and knowing that, knowing that that's going to happen. I, you know, many of us want to just land on the justice side. I want justice, I want justice, I want justice. And yet there's still a grace and a mercy and a respect for people as well. So you have all of that playing out that this forgiveness and this perseverance is going to play, but it doesn't mean that the people of Israel were perfect. In fact, forgiveness and perseverance, what do they offer? They offer a great hope. Look at the hope. Think about, think about now. From chapter 15 on, it is really going to ramp up and it's transitioning the old generation that came out of Egypt went through the, saw the wonderful signs and wonders of God, went through the uh, Red Sea, rebelled against God. But from 15 on, you now have these people who are going to be the new generation, the next generation that's going to go into the promised land as promised by God. So what do we see? As you, as you look through, as you look through the, the book, the second half here, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going to see that as I already read in 15, verse 2 and verse 18, the, the hope, God has said, when you go into the land, that's, that's wonderful hope that occurs to them. In chapter 20, verse 25, you're going to see the transition at the end of chapter 25 or, verse, or chapter 20, Aaron is going to die. And yet God provides a transition of leadership. He says it's going to be Eliezer. He's at verse 26, uh, 25, he says, bring up Eliezer, Aaron's son, to Mount Hor. And then they strip, his, strip Aaron of his, uh, his priestly garments, and you're going to put them on Eliezer, his son. And so Moses did that, and then when they come down, Aaron doesn't come down off of Mount Hor. Aaron dies up on Mount Hor, does not return <clears throat> back, to the, back to the people. You have him there, and now Eliezer is the new priest. And you got to wonder... <laughs> to the people, I don't like the new priest. I don't like, he, do, he doesn't talk like the old priest. He isn't as good as you. He's not as charismatic as Aaron. He's not like, and you got to wonder if people complain or grumble. We don't know. You think with their nature, there probably may have been some, but we're not told that they do in the text. But there is a, there is a hope. There is a hope that, hey, there's a new priest. God's still planning for long-term living. There's a chapter 26. There's the whole new census, the second census. Remember why the census was given in chapter one? Because we're going on a conquest where it's a military census. It's like, all right, we're going to rally the troops. We need to know how many we have. So now we're going to do the census the second time. It's not just because we need to know how many people. God knew how many people. It is preparing the people for battle. It is saying, all right, let's start wrapping our heads around this. I am sending you into the land. This is going to be a great hope 
for the people. Chapter 27. You get to chapter 27 down in verses 18 and 19. Um, it's got to be it's got to be an interesting time for Moses to go and to say, "All right, I have lost my ability to go into the land because of my sin. Now I'm going to appoint because God is appointing this new leader." So, in verse 18 of chapter 27, it says, "And the Lord said to Moses, Take you Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay hand upon lay thy hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest." And before the, all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And what is going to happen is there's going to be this beginning of the transfer of power between Moses to Joshua. You see that often in, in leadership, where the, the successor is named, and then they're able to work together for a while, and then the transition occurs. You see that here with Joshua. And for the people to know. This is who God, this is, Moses is telling us, this is the guy to follow. If Moses is saying it, that means God is saying it. And so God is preparing this great hope, this great offering of, hey, we're still going forward. By the time you get to chapter 32 and 34, we're not going to go through all that right now. You're going to see, there's going to be some who want to settle on the, the, what's called the Transjordan side, the opposite side of where Israel normally is. And then chapter 34, there's going to be this painstaking process of saying, you're going to have this part of the land, and you're going to have this part of the land. And we might look and go, oh, why do we have to? But think about the people who are there. As they're listening, and they're saying, yes, we have land over there that has been given to us by God, and Moses is telling us about it. That's ours. We know exactly what's going to be. And when you're going through and you're like, this is my land. This is just where I'm going to live. Maybe that's my house. There's an excitement. There's a hope. There's an enthusiasm because the forgiveness of God has occurred. God is persevering with his people. He has not forgotten his people. He is going forward. He's saying, hey, let's go into the land. I'm taking you there and I'm going to give this to you. As we look at forgiveness and we look at perseverance, it offers a great hope, but it also offers great victory. As you go through, as you go through the passages, you're going to see that um, God is going to provide victory over the, Amal- or the Canaanites who are going to come against him in chapter 21. You're going to see over Balaam and Balak. You're going to see the uh, victory over the Midianites in chapter 31. You're going to see that God provides this victory for his people. It's really amazing as you look at how God works through this book. The beautiful picture. You know, even, he even takes time. I don't have slides for it, but in chapter 18, he's going to do the exact same thing he did in the first half. He's, he told in the first half, remember he said, I'm going to give instructions for the priests, the Levites. He does it again in chapter 18. More instructions. He's going to look and he's going to rehearse it again about personal purity and their responsibility in verse 19. In verses 20, or, ch- or not verse 19, chapter 19, chapter 28 and 29, he's going to highlight the importance of worship and rituals and the feasts, just like he did earlier in the book. Most of the stuff he did early in the book that God rehearsed with the first generation, God rehearses again with the second generation. And if we, pl- if we, take out and just think, well, man, God is just adding more and more and more. And we got the point, God, when we're we're reading it and we just read it through our eyes, we're missing the point. We're missing the complete point of the story. 
God rehearses. Why does Moses rehearse the law in Deuteronomy, the second giving? It's not because, the, I mean, yes, the people were at times thick and they didn't get it. But it's all about the hope. It's all about the ability to go forward after forgiveness and after great and horrific sin. He's rehearsing what the people say. This is your responsibility. This is what you're committing to when you make these vows in this covenant with God. He's saying you're going into the land. There is hope. And how beautiful of a picture for us. And when we look, we can, we can honestly say, as you look at the book, you look at the flow of the book, what happens? You have God preparing his people. He did that, chapters 1 to 10. But the people didn't trust God. They're too great. It's too big. They murmured. They rebelled. They went against him. And yet God persevered with his people. Think about that picture in light of our lives now as believers. We have Christ. And yet when we fail, and yet when we rebel, Yet when we murmur or complain or choose to be angry with leadership or when we choose to have choice words with fellow co-workers or you pick, you, you deal with what you're dealing with in your life for a moment. And you fail and you fail and you fail and you've repented. And you're saying, God just doesn't care. There's no way he could care about me. There's no way that God is... is going to help me because I failed so much. It's not about me. God provides the grace. God provides the strength. He has, he's allowed us to persevere, to continue to go forward, to strive, to, to work through our lives, not to work for our salvation, but to be able to struggle and to strive. And he provides for us the armor of God. He provides for us the words of comfort. He provided for us the Holy Spirit when we got saved to convict and to strengthen, to, to be able to be yielded to him and to be filled with his power. He gives us all of that. Why? Because God is not just about, I'm just going to strike them dead as soon as they fail. But he looks and says, there's hope. There's hope. If you're here and you're listening, you say, there's no hope for me. I've failed so many. Yes, there is. God offers hope. He is a God of hope. Yes, there is justice. Yes, God will deal with sin. Yes, there will be those, those moments where even as Moses talks about, you know, your sin is going to be made known. We're going to, it's going to be dealt with. And yet he says, God says, you still can have promised land living. You can still experience the blessings of God in your life. Repent of the sin. Move away from it and turn to God. Turn and trust in him, whether if it's for salvation or for many of you listening, it's probably just making sure we're right with God. And isn't it interesting? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm the only one in this. I look at the idea of complaining and grumbling and murmuring as not really that big of a deal. Remember, we've talked about in our foundations in our one-to-one where we talk about how we view sin and how God views sin. We view some sins as here and other sins as really here. And yet when God views them from the top, he sees all these sins that we've just committed. I tend to not view grumbling, complaining, murmuring, bickering, challenging authority as that big of an issue. And yet look in the book of Numbers how God views that sin. You know, as we, as we wrap up today,
I want to go back to that story about my dad. As I mentioned, dad, dad found himself in a wilderness, in a hard time in life. And I completely get that. Completely understand the difficulties and the battles that he faced because of how his life was basically shattered and changed. And yet, through that situation, God used it to provide a really unique opportunity for him. He has a passion. Just a couple passions in life. He loves his family. He is very protective of his family, and I, I love him for that. But he's very passionate about God, and he's very passionate about baseball. And we've always been, we've always been a baseball family. And yes, I like the Chicago White Sox, in case you did not figure that out. It's the, we don't have much to root for, but hey, that's okay. But what, what did God do? Because dad now had this time available, because now dad wasn't able to work, and because of his disability with the hand and not being able to go back to some of those jobs, he had some extra time. And what ended up, ended up happening a number of years ago is his pastor got a call from one of the minor league baseball clubs on the south side of Chicago. And they said, hey, we need a chaplain. We need somebody who can come in and preach to the guys and share with them and do Bible studies with them and mentor these young men. Usually anywhere from the age of like 19 to 25 is the age group he's dealing with. And so now he's been able to, for the last, last eight years or so, on a consistent basis, go in on Sundays, preach the gospel to them and to others who, from that team and other teams who are coming in. To be able to do Bible studies with these young men, to help them through difficult times, to give them marriage counseling and advice, and to be able to minister, though, though he's not trained as a theological minister of the gospel with an ordination certificate, he's able to take the knowledge of the word of God that he has been reared up in and his love for baseball, and God miraculously and wonderfully brought that together. So that there's now men who play Major League Baseball that dad has ministered to, that he has had in his house, that they have stayed there and they have been hospitable with, and that he's been able to share the gospel with and lead to the Lord and help them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they're out there now around the country, and it was because of a crane ball coming down and smashing his hand. He wouldn't have had that opportunity. And so we can look at the wilderness and we can get frustrated. Sometimes it is frustrating because we put ourselves there. Sometimes others have put us in that situation. But when we look at the wilderness, when we look at the difficulties of life, understand that God has a plan and God is hopeful and he provides us hope and he provides us great grace and mercy. Let me encourage you today. And as we dive deeper into the book of Numbers, to look at the big picture. God has provided for you. He has prepared you to minister in this generation, in this situation. Do you trust him? And understand that if you haven't, turn back to him. And no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, God perseveres with us. He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. Lo, I am with you always even until the end of the ages. Lord, we're thankful that you are with us. Help us to live our lives in light of that fact. Help us to turn in our rebellion at times back to you. 
Lord, help us not to continually beat ourselves up, but to trust in your grace, your mercy, your love. But Lord, help us not to take advantage of them either. Lord, help us, and I pray that you would give us opportunities to minister gracefully in this trying time. In your name we pray. Amen.